In early 2017, Ms. Lauren Sweat was appointed to serve as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, the second in command at OSHA, and at the same time served as the Acting Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, the head of OSHA, while the nation awaited the confirmation of the nominee for that position. That confirmation never came. And so Ms. Lauren Sweat served for the entirety of the prior presidential administration as the head of OSHA up until the last day of the administration, whereupon at 11.59 p.m., a minute before midnight, Ms. Sweat, having completed her duties, submitted her resignation. And we are joined today by Ms. Lauren Sweat, having resigned from the position as head of OSHA, an agency which she ran for the past four years, on this, the January 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030 with Mana Shrath. Welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. And as I said, we're joined today by Ms. Lauren Sweat, who for four years served as the head of OSHA. Uh, and prior to that had served for 15 years in Congress as the, uh, as the uh, serving in the House of Representatives uh, as the senior policy advisor at the Committee of, on Education and Workforce uh, Policy and, and after many years in, in that role, had taken on the, the role at OSHA that we just discussed. Ms. Sweat, thank you very much. We're very grateful to you for joining us today. Thank you so much for asking me to participate in your podcast. Ms. Sweat, I guess the first question that we should talk about, you'd spent four years heading up the agency. Can you talk to us about some of the accomplishments that the agency can can relate to the folks listening to the issue 3030 and and uh, share with us some of your your impressions about those those years sure thank you manish for the opportunity to to talk about the really amazing work that occurs at the occupational safety and health administration um, we have a couple of graphs here uh, to talk about the number of inspections that were conducted over the last two years um, so as you can see uh, sort of on these OSHA was on target to meet or exceed the 2019 inspection numbers until the agency rightly shifted to the pandemic response. The numbers we have here don't show the planned versus unplanned inspections, but unplanned inspections are obviously when there is a report of an imminent danger or a worker is hurt. And what is unfortunate for some of the unplanned inspections, um, especially in 2020, was as we started seeing people go back to work, uh, some of the traditional workplace accidents started happening again. And in response to that, OSHA encouraged um, a lot of refresher training for workers who'd been idled and recommended this as a good practice for any idled business. And um, obviously the agency's resources are always available online, uh, but we shifted to COVID response in 2020 and that dramatically changed um, the numbers that you see compared to where we were for 19 and 18. So uh, on the whistleblower side, which is something that sometimes people forget OSHA does, 
Um, the number of whistleblower complaints, I have to say, is pretty stunning. As you can see from um, DOL OIG reports and, and Inspector General reports and other government accountability office reports, the program is already pretty overwhelmed and um, the agency's budget under my tenure sought to hire more investigators to tackle the 23 whistleblower statutes that we currently had. And um, you can see that there's a fairly systemic problem with the number of complaints that we received um, this is just representing COVID for 2020 compared to 2019 um, for all 23 statutes. And those 23 really statutes range well beyond workplace safety and health and go to things like Sarbanes-Oxley, atomic energy. So it's a huge portfolio to, to have to handle. It is. And that's a great point to my next point, because I think it's little noticed that Congress added two more whistleblower statutes at the end of the last term. So now they'll have 25 statutes with no additional funding, um, unless we see something this year, obviously. And um, I think it's fair to say that whistleblower investigators do some pretty amazing work in very trying circumstances. And I think it's a matter of public policy that this program needs some more attention in order for it to be properly resourced and functional. Uh, this is one of the things I'm most proud of um, that we did in 2019, we set a record for the number of um, workers trained and educated through the variety of um, avenues that you can come to OSHA. So we have the education centers, which are in partnership with OSHA and regular OSHA outreach training. And uh, so it was a really amazing accomplishment in 2019 to set this record only to be outdone by 2020, where workers and employers took uh, a, advantage of um, being not in the workplace to do more training and education. And the education and um, education centers, I think, did a really amazing job of converting almost immediately into virtual learning. So um, they went from in class eight to 10 hours to a couple of weeks later, virtual. Um, it was a really amazing team effort to get this all online in a way that workers who were laid off could get some um, really powerful training. Ms. Sweat, let's talk a little bit about the on-site consultation program. I think it's a, an incredibly important and I, I, a program, and I don't think it gets as much attention as it deserves. I agree. And um, I will tell you, one of the career staff early on said to me, every time you make a speech, if you could talk about on-site consultation, that would be great. And so we did. And um, the number of folks that uh, started in on the program and uh, contacting the program went up. And uh, so that was really great. It's, it's a great program, especially for small businesses. And they can um, have a consultant come in. It's free. The most important thing is it's firewalled from the agency's enforcement. So um, these are programs that are funded by grant from OSHA, but are actually implemented through the states and not just a state plan, state um, program. So it's estimated that the program saves about $1.3 billion in costs to employers through the prevention of worker injuries. And it's such a powerful program that when we saw issues early on with COVID and some of these medium-sized businesses might have needed some help in some specific industries, we worked um, through the consultation programs to open it up wider um, so it wasn't just small business, but other um, medium-sized businesses that could use help for safety and health management programs. 
Swet, can we talk about some of the regulatory activities and deregulatory activities that occurred during your administration? Uh, sure. So um, when I came in, we were facing a series of lawsuits, and um, I felt it was very important that we, I, some of them might have been yours, <laughs> that we um, address uh, getting the, the regulatory agenda uh, cleaned up a little bit, if you will. And um, so I was very pleased that we were able to finalize uh, corrections really on beryllium in general industry and construction and maritime. The problems, of course, with these had been um, they were rushed out the door towards the end of the previous administration, and there were just frankly some mistakes. And so, in order to make it a functional um, regulatory standard, we needed to correct some of the verbiage, and uh, we were able to um, eliminate the lawsuit problem and and get these to final. I want to point out about the brilliant standard that this represented prior to it being rushed out the door by the agency. This represented a, a moment for historical opportunity because it was hammered out by management and labor together working out a system that they thought was workable, monitorable, and enforceable internally at the corporation, at the corporations responsible for complying with this, uh, this putative or potential standard. And, uh, and that, that represents a model that doesn't necessarily have to describe how every rule should go forth in the future, but it certainly was the creation of a new category of model for how rules could be written. And I thought that that showed some promise at the time. It, it should have been the gold standard for how OSHA um, does regulate, especially in these highly technical areas. Especially in these highly technical areas where the corporations are possessed of a great deal of that technological experience and knowledge. That's right. That's a good point, Ms. White. So um, some of the other items that we got through are listed here. I would note that um, it was about $50 million in cumulative cost savings through the deregulatory process. And I recognize stakeholders want aggressive deregulatory action, but for OSHA, you have to um, maintain worker safety. So we did a really amazing job of finding things to um, fix in the regulatory structure um, while also protecting workers and saving money. And one of the most um, important ones to me was the uh, construction crane operator certification. It had been on the agenda for approximately 10 years and um, we got it complete and out the door in 2018. And I really think that um, it, it helps uh, along, it goes a long way to helping in the construction industry and it clarified what was expected. Ms. Sweat, uh, let's talk about what I've been told is the number one, two and three agenda item at the agency, which is COVID, COVID, COVID. Uh, can you share any insights during your time at the agency? Yes, so OSHA responded to this unprecedented national crisis in a way that it has responded to every unprecedented national crisis in which it's involved. Um, while I know there's been a fair amount of criticism, unfair criticism, leveled at the agency for its response, um, one of the first items we tackled was how to respond rapidly to the dramatic increase of complaints. And we chose the non-formal process, a long-standing enforcement tool, which allowed OSHA to put employers on notice that there was an alleged problem. And if the response was satisfactory, the complaint was closed. Where it was not satisfactory, uh, it was converted into an inspection or escalated in some way. So while the agency received thousands of complaints, 
every complaint was investigated or is in the process of being investigated. And um, as you know, we have six months to complete those. So while we had a lot of criticism early on about not issuing complaints, by the end of the year, we'd issued uh, 300 um, COVID citations uh, related to the inspections that we had done and about 3.9 million in penalties. So I really want to um, stress that no, OSHA never abandoned its enforcement related to COVID. And um, these things take time, they're health inspections and health inspections can take almost two times as long to investigate as a safety inspection. Ms. Sweat, you say there was unfair criticism on that point. There was also unfair criticism, I thought, uh, about rulemaking or guidance uh, and whether or not the agency was doing enough in that field. Sure. Um, one of the other things we did almost immediately, as you can see, we put out our first general guidance document March 9th, um, was take the H1N1 document and pair it back to make it COVID specific and um, get the information into the hands of employers so that we could help prevent the spread of COVID early on. Um, so the early intervention worked to get people as much information as we could, um, even as the science was changing through February, March, and April. Um, I think that uh, what we did here was really amazingly quick for the agency. And if you look at the increased website traffic, uh, the increase of our social media use and the increase of people who subscribe to our Quick Takes newsletter, um, people were desperate for information and our subject matter experts were frantically putting things together and getting it out as quickly as possible, working with CDC and our HHS partners to make sure we could get whatever we could into the hands of employers to help protect workers. We did 20 specific um, industry specific guidance documents as we talk about here. And um, a lot of this guidance was translated into 14 additional languages. We're very fortunate to have um, bilingual Spanish speakers and we were almost instantaneously able to translate any guidance that we did um, from English to Spanish. And we were ably assisted by people like the head of the Puerto Rico state plan. And he um, took our March 9th guidance and immediately translated it for Puerto Rico and then sent it back to us and said, hey, in case you haven't been able to get through this 20 page document, here it is, I did it overnight. I mean, these are the kinds of great teamwork stories that people just didn't see or experience. Wow, and you mentioned 20 industry specific guidance documents. I think there were a dozen to 16 that were put out in a two or three week period from late April to the first week of May, uh, all of a sudden in a, in a quite a brief period of great uh, prolific output. We were very fortunate to have really amazing, smart people who were able to put this down on paper and, and get it into the right hands. So following on that, there were some legal challenges to the agency, I believe. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the first things that we were sued on was the emergency temporary standard and um, trying to mandate that we issue one. The emergency temporary standard is a unique tool for the agency and historically an unsuccessful one. Um, as I said, you know, getting information on how to prevent the spread of the disease and protect workers was the first and foremost of what employers needed when the pandemic hit. 
the challenge to force the agency to issue an ETS really did nothing to assist in our efforts, um, which is unfortunate. And it was very, it was used a very divisive political tool. And um, so putting that aside, since the challenge was struck down twice, um, there were also some very inventive third-party lawsuits um, through the states trying to get OSHA drug in in different ways. So I'll give the attorneys credit for um, inventiveness, but um, I think the this Judge Kogan um, really highlighted in this one case um, recently that um, regulating in the age of COVID-19 is a dynamic and fact-intensive matter fraught with medical uncertainty. I would highlight that we were writing documents and um, working with CDC and HHS and NIOSH and you know amazing folks there, um, and they would issue something that we thought, okay, we need to now tweak our guidance before we put it out later today, only to pull something back an hour later. Um, so the, the process itself was um, quick and challenging. And I would just say back to the issue of the ETS, uh, how would we have been able to promulgate a static regulation um, at the time when all of the facts were changing hourly and daily? Well, that's right. And if I recollect, and I think we covered this case uh, that you're referring to in a prior OSHA 3030, but uh, if I recollect, Judge Kogan had essentially said, your quote is perfect, that you'd pulled from the opinion that because regulating uh, COVID-related matters is fact-intensive and fraught with medical uncertainty, it's not appropriate to ask the judiciary to evaluate the cases that the agency has uniquely uh, been apportioned the power to regulate, and that this would be an upending of of that order of uh, separation of powers and, and asking the, the courts to essentially step in on matters that, that OSHA has been charged with, with its, uh, uh, exercising its expertise on. Well, let's keep moving. Uh, so when we talk about emergency temporary standards, which was the point of this, these suits was tried to, to judicially force the agency to, uh, to promulgate an emergency temporary standard. Are there uh, any, and uh, is there anything about emergency temporary standards with respect to COVID that you can share with us? Um, sure. So I, I wanted to highlight this through the executive order. And if I can start by saying, um, setting aside the ETS, the agency's response to COVID, I think, is little changed with this executive order. And uh, I would note with CARES Act funding, OSHA is already developing uh, more guidance and examining existing guidance to make sure that it's in line with all of the other federal entities. There's already been robust stakeholder input by parties who chose to work with the agency. And fundamentally, an ETS needs to focus on preventing the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace, um, not just uh, another enforcement hammer. Um, folks out there, employers are are trying as far as I can see anecdotally and through what we've done, even on the enforcement side, uh, most of the time they were trying to do something. Uh, maybe they didn't have all the facts, maybe they didn't have all the pieces in place and that's why um, they ended up with a citation. But it, it's very rare in the age of COVID that you find an employer who's flagrantly violating the law. So if, they decide that they need to do an emergency temporary standard. I think it's going to be a real challenge. Um, I mean, these are some of the things that we had to ask ourselves in the last year that I was there, but um, how do you get employers to comply with some of these broader 
mandates that you're talking about. It's not just enough to say the employer has to provide a mask for the employees. Um, what if you work in a business that serves the public? Who's going to mandate that they put on a mask? And you've seen a lot of the situations in different states where they have the mandatory mask and um, people uh, don't respond very well to that and employers are then injured. Um, employees, I should say, are then injured. So uh, this comes to my second policy question of how does OSHA enforce this? And um, I think there's gonna have to be some real uh, serious consideration and discussion within the agency about how it targets its resources on, on this issue uh, related to the emergency temporary standard. And uh, my third bullet here about expanding to state and local, it, these entities aren't currently covered by OSHA. So you're taking an agency with challenging resources, if you will. Everyone knows that we hired aggressively on inspectors, but we didn't get to the number that we perhaps wanted. Um, you can't magically double the number of inspectors as I think some folks have talked about. So how are they going to allocate resources in states to places that they wouldn't normally go and have coverage? And um, would we even be able to issue a citation to a state or a locality? Um, so I think there's a lot of questions, uh, a lot of policy questions that uh, will be considered and unfortunately a very quick amount of time because I think this has a March 15 deadline for them to have made a decision. Right. One of the things that bothers me or, or worries me about an emergency temporary standard, when you look, for example, at other states that have issued uh, emergency temporary standards related to COVID, is the idea that the employer is triggered into certain uh, abatement type actions with, uh, with any number of cases in the, in the present in the workplace. And if you look at other health standards, and clearly this would be a health standard, there is a threshold level above which employers are compelled to take certain actions. The problem with that when applied to COVID is that the threshold level will be exceeded by community spread. There's no clear way to distinguish between community cases and workplace related cases. And so unless an emergency temporary standard finds a way to solve for that problem, it in uh, it burdens the employer with an unfair challenge of having to solve an essentially community problem. Because if hypothetically the emergency temporary standard doesn't isolate just the workplace uh, exposures, and I, I mentioned that because Ms. Sweat, as you may or may not know, we have a lot of corporate safety and health professionals. We have a lot of uh, corporate in-house counsel responsible for OSHA. We also have a large number of trade associations listening in on the OSHA 3030. Even one uh, exalted potentate from uh, a, a coalition of businesses, and so so these are, are the folks that are going to be crafting uh, a policy position about an emergency temporary standard. And I think that this threshold level is a very important one when hammering out what a final emergency temporary standard has to look like. Well, let's keep going. Uh, so we talked about uh, some of the problems with emergency temporary standard. I think another one would be the opportunity for stakeholder involvement, uh, both from the employer community as well as from uh, from from the work workplace or or labor representative interests. Yes. So um, one of the challenges that we faced uh, when the agency was looking at a legislative. Um, mandate, if you will, that we would have to uh, put something out within seven days. 
Um, clearly there would have been zero stakeholder input at that point. We would have had to put something on paper, send it to OMB and hope we could get it out um, by the time the legislative legal deadline hit. Um, but I do think that um, if the agency moves on an ETS, the stakeholder input comes after the fact uh, because it the act itself requires um, that a standard be completed, uh, which is the only time that stakeholders would have the opportunity to comment. And um, I just generally want to say that it's so important that the regulated community does provide robust comments on regulations. So even if it's an ETS that converts into another standard or any other uh, proposed rule that the agency puts out, uh, if you have robust regulatory feedback for the agency, then they need to hear it. They're very smart people. Um, they are uh, trained in some very technical disciplines, but I would say by and large, no one there has ever run a business. And so for employers who know that something's just not going to work, letting the agency know why it's not going to work technically um, why it's not feasible. These are really powerful messages that, that need to be heard through the regulatory process. Ms. Sweat, I think that's really important. We've, we've prepared uh, comments in every rule, OSHA rulemaking for the past 50 years. And I, I'll tell you that just merely opposing or saying that we oppose this regulation because it's, it's expensive, et cetera, is not as persuasive as what you just described, which is walking the agency through the implementation at a particular workplace and explaining what are the problems it creates that are unsolvable, what are the uh, greater hazards or the impracticalities or the things that the, the folk who have drafted the uh, draft comment, uh, the draft rule may not have contemplated. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing I'd say is to walk through the legalities of it. This is a really important, these are the really important comments that will be taken into account. And it's important not to bury them in the rush to meet the uh, comments deadline with uh, mere opposition. I think that that's uh, something that they anticipate and it gets neutralized because it's so expected uh, compared to that actual real life application kind of data. Uh, Ms. Sweat, let's talk about uh, some of the stakeholder kind of feedback, uh, in particular, uh, the impact on small businesses and uh, any other observations you might have had so far. Sure, uh, so I think it's really important that where there's opportunity to comment, folks take advantage of that. The um, first usually out the door um, when they have started a rulemaking is the small business entity review panels under the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act. And that SIPRIFA process really is the foundation for how things are going to proceed. So if you can find small business entities who have the time to participate, that's really important. Um, I, I will say, as we just sort of talked about, it's hard to find that time if you're a small business running your company, um, but it really will help uh, in the long run of what the agency ends up with in a final rule. Um, we talked a little bit about on-site consultation and how important that can be for small businesses, but I, I really uh, just can't stress enough that if we could, get stakeholders from the business community to interact in a comprehensive, fulsome, and robust way with the agency, I think it would make a great impact on how rules and standards are ultimately finalized. 
small businesses have actually two opportunities, don't they? Because they can also participate in the comment process and they can participate through uh, small business uh, associations that represent their particularized to representing small businesses. And I think that how these regulations impact them is particularly sympathetic. And so they have, I agree with you, an incredibly important role to, to play. Uh, okay, let's talk uh, generally, let's step back and, uh, and, and give you an opportunity to share any of your impressions from, from four years of running the agency. Uh, any, anything that you'd like to share with the OSHA 3030 community? Sure, so these um, last couple of slides are some of my favorite uh, myths, if you will, about OSHA. And um, I hear this, I heard this when I was on the Hill. Oh, well, they are just citing these people because they're getting the money. Um, so all the civil money penalties go to the treasury. Um, they don't come to OSHA, they don't help fund the agency. And uh, another great one that we get thrown yeah, at. And, and if I could interject, Ms. Sweat, I think that most people on all sides would agree that the penalty structure when compared to other enforcement agencies like EPA, for example, is not a driver in the interaction between the agency and the regulated community, not even close. It shouldn't be until it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, because ultimately abatement is what we're seeking, right? Um, on all sides, we want to eliminate the hazard. We want to take the worker out of the dangerous situation. And so that's really the, the ultimate goal. The penalty is a frustration part for the employer, I'm sure, but it doesn't go to the agency's coffers. So that was one important aspect. Um, there's also a belief that inspectors cite uh, because somehow they're getting a financial benefit from the enforcement side. So there's actually, uh, and I copied this out of the act, there's actually um, law that says, in fact, you can't use bonuses or any of um, those kinds of incentives um, in the enforcement world because it's a, a perverse incentive for inspectors if they were getting some kind of financial benefit other than their paycheck. Um, so this is another great one. They won't leave unless they find something wrong. Uh, so this isn't really true. Um, on average, 20% of inspections have um, no violation. And so while 80% they do find something, um, it, it's not that they have been told by the area director, don't come back unless you have something. Um, so I think uh, that's just another thing that folks should, should know. And um, there's also a level of frustration that at the end of an inspection, you don't automatically get your parking ticket, um, which is really an important part because they actually have to come back and the area directors have to review their notes and so there's a second level, sometimes there's a third level if there's an assistant area director and then an area director. So by the time you get the citation, um, there has been some management oversight to ensure that what's issued is correct. It doesn't always say that it's 100% correct every time, but there's been some oversight of the process. And um, yeah, then finally, uh, there are a couple of things that people are worried about interacting with the agency that if you call the compliance assistance specialist, they're going to hand you over to enforcement. Um, so I wish folks would interact more positively with the agency. Um, if you need compliance assistance, there are people there to help. And um, so it's, it's often better to ask uh, before the inspector shows up 
but calling to ask doesn't mean the inspector will show up. And sorry, you were going to say something. I was. Thank you, Ms. Sweat. I, I think it's important to point out, though, that, and you and I have had a conversation about this. When uh, an employer calls the, the agency and uses the 1 800 number, they should specifically ask to speak to a compliance assistance specialist uh, to make sure that they are dealing with the compliance arm. Yes, I, I think that's very important. Um, you can do some of this online. Um, we have the, it's called the e-correspondence. Um, so you, you get a response, but yes, talk to the compliance folks and talk to them before the enforcement folks show up. And um, finally, I, I know that folks are back to my other point of um, the, the guy leaves, the lady leaves. I don't know if I'm gonna get a citation. Um, there's a six month statute of limitations. So it's not as if the person goes off and two years later, um, if there's a violation, you get your citation. It has to be there within six months. And um, so it's not an open-ended uh, inspection. And I think there are some other agencies that don't have that six months. And so um, I can understand the frustration if you think it's going to drag on for two or three years, but the initial inspection part is six months. If you challenge, yes, it can drag on a little bit longer. The only other two things I'd add to that, Ms. Sweat, is, is of course, uh, ongoing violations don't have a discrete start and stop of six months. And the other is if you have an inspection number, you, at the end of 181 days, you can certainly call and find out what the status of your inspection is. Yes, all true. Okay. Ms. Sweat, you've put together, I think it was a very thoughtful list of, of resources from the website. Thank you. Uh, so I, I, we talked a lot about items that are available um, that you can go find on the website. The first is the coronavirus webpage. You can reach it from OSHA.gov, but this link will get you to the specific alerts, guidance documents, um, uh, other facts and figures related to COVID. And um, the second one is also COVID related. So I feel like it was October, but the last year has been a blur. Um, we put together a list of uh, what was most cited from COVID inspections and uh, some uh, links to the standards so that people could uh, better familiarize themselves with what other people had stumbled across or stumbled over. And um, so that's the top cited standards for COVID. If folks are interested in the onsite consultation program, they can go to the next link. And then back to training. Um, training and education is a foundational to preventing workplace accidents, um, especially in these um, highly technical areas, or um, even in some areas that aren't highly technical, but you need to know and understand what you're doing when you go into work every day. And so uh, you can find a certified trainer off of the OSHA website. Well, Ms. Sweat, I think that's going to be the last word substantively. I will say this, though. Uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the program, you turned in your resignation on the last day of the administration, so you served uh, faithfully to the very end. And uh, we were on the phone the very next morning <laughs> talking about the OSHA 3030. So thank you for that. I want to thank you for coming on board with the OSHA 3030, where in-house counsel and safety and health professionals in the corporate environment, we even have members of the trade press dedicated to occupational safety and health. We have trade associations uh, listening. And so your, your insight and feedback to the OSHA 3030 community is of tremendous value. Uh, certainly more so than any topic that we've ever covered. And so thank you for that. 
Uh, I want to say, as I look back at all of the folk, the all, all of whom are fine folk who have held the title of running the agency, uh, and look back at how each of them have variously characterized their time there, it's, in, it's been my impression since the beginning that you have characterized your time uh, at the agency with a uh, civility to everybody uh, on all, all sides of all debates, with a, uh, a poise and a grace and uh, a, a dignity that I, I think is a stamp that uh, will, will bear well on the agency for many years to come. And I hope that all of your successors take a page from your book. Uh, I think it would be welcome. And I, I think that the whole community, uh, regulated community, is grateful to you for your service for four years as, as the head of, of the agency. I think you ran it with all of those qualities to distinguish you. Um, I will say one more thing. You know, when you look at uh, outgoing presidents, uh, they leave a note apparently in the Resolute Desk for the, 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 uh, their successor. And so I, I'm curious, just as my last question, and so that, so that you have the last word on the show, uh, if you could, I don't think you knew who your successor was going to be at the time of your resignation. If you could uh, have leave any note for your successor now here on the OSHA 3030, would you would you have any last comments that you'd like to provide? Um, sure. So first, let me say um, I was greatly honored to serve um, during this very unprecedented time in our nation's history, and um, it was great. It was horrible, but it was great. <laughs> so let me say that um, for my own personal, I really appreciate that. Um, but I think if I were to um, have left a letter for whomever uh, was coming in, um, I think it would be important to say, um, if you serve the mission first and take care of the career OSHA staff, then the agency will succeed. And protecting the career staff from the politics is the most important job of the political staff. And so I wish them luck. Um, the challenge continues and, um, you know, thank you. I think that's impressive. Uh, that's a great uh, note to part on. So you have the last word. Ms. Sweat, thank you again for joining us. And uh, we look forward to seeing all of you again next month on the next OSHA 3030. Until then, stay safe. 